This is now the fifth sermon in this book, uh, this short book. Uh, We are going to be in Jude, verses 11 through 13, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Jude, verses 11 through 13. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our great and mighty triune God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we have uh, to spend plumbing the depths of your word. We pray, O Lord, that we would, um, by your spirit and by faith, see Jesus Christ clearly here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In November of 1478, in the town of Seville, Spain, a group of Spanish priests, with the approval of the Pope and the blessing and encouragement of the King and Queen of Spain, began to round up conversos, or converts, to Christianity from Judaism. These converts were put on trial to examine their faith to see whether or not it was genuine. And in that act, the Spanish Inquisition was born. After this, inquisitors were sent all over the known world to examine and test the faith of all converts to Christianity, all Christians. Often, these men and women who were subjected to these trials were put uh, in, in horrible situations where they were tortured or were encouraged to report their friends, family members, and neighbors whom they believed lacked sufficient faith to let the inquisitors know so that they can be rounded up and investigated. It was a terrible time of confusion and suspicion, and it led to the deaths of many people and brought shame upon the church of Christ. It may seem to some that Jude here in this letter is trying to stir up some form of inquisition in the churches that he's writing to. This book, coming at the end of the New Testament, is only 25 verses long, but Jude spends quite a lot of time talking about the aberrant behavior of men who have infiltrated the church. It could seem to some that Jude is trying to get them to be suspicious of one another, but Jude isn't trying to lead an inquisition or to get people in the churches to examine the lives of everyone around them to see whether or not their friends or neighbors or family members are those those people who pervert the grace of God that he's talking about. No, Jude isn't trying to do this. We need to remember that always before we examine the lives of others, you and I need to first look at our own lives to see if there be any wicked way in us. In a very misunderstood and abused passage of Scripture, Christ told His disciples to take the logs out of their own eyes before attending to the specks in their brother's eyes. 
This admonition is, though misunderstood uh, by, by many, and seems by, to them to indicate that we can never call out others' sins, this admonition is, is one that Christ gives that, that we must take to heart. As we read Jude's descriptions of the wicked men in these churches, you and I must ask, ask ourselves whether or not our behavior matches the behavior of these people that Jude is describing. If so, you and I must repent. We must repent. Because as Jude says over and over and over again, these men have earned nothing but severe condemnation and judgment from God because of their actions. And so if our actions are similar to theirs, what does that say about us? Now, all throughout this letter, Jude is calling you and me to to take the logs out of our own eyes. And yet he also does want us to be very aware of the sins of these men and others like them who are trying to disrupt the peace and purity of the church in Jude's day, but who also do similar things in our day as well. So Jude's main concern is not to lead some sort of inquisition, but rather to bolster the faith of the Christians while at the same time drawing their attention to these specific men among them who are seeking to lead them astray. As we've seen already in our study of this book, the churches that Jude writes to have been infiltrated by men who are, as he says in verse 4, ungodly men, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude does not, as we understand, does not specifically name the people who do these wicked things. But he does give the Christians and give to you and me lots of clues that they should be looking for, markers that distinguish these men from others. And in doing this, Jude is following in his own brother's footsteps and is reminding the Christians of what Christ himself taught us that you will recognize whether or not someone is a Christian by their fruit. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, we read, uh, we read this passage, this, this uh, teaching from Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells his listeners that there will be those who come into Uh, the covenant community of God with bad intentions. Instead of seeking to build up the body around them, these false prophets will infiltrate God's people in the guise of sheep. But they are inwardly ravenous wolves, only seeking to devour God's people. But Jesus just doesn't just tell us, uh, look out for them. He tells us what to expect from them. He tells us how you and I can spot one of these wolves by his or her fruit. Now, I'm no botanist, 
but it's generally true, as Christ says here, that a healthy tree will bear good fruit, whereas a diseased tree will bear bad fruit or no fruit at all. Jesus is telling you and me in this passage that we must examine the fruit of the false prophets. We must examine the fruits of those who seek to lead the church because it's by their fruit that you will recognize the true children of God. It's a sad fact of life in this fallen world that there will be men who seek office in the church who do not have the best intentions at heart. There will be some who will want to wield uh, power over others and some who will seek to take advantage of God's people for personal gain, whether that be financial or otherwise. But that is an attitude that's true of the people in the church as well. It doesn't just happen in leadership. I knew an insurance salesman who would change church membership every few months or years in order to meet new people and to grow his own clientele. You will know these people by their fruits. Jesus says that you can determine whether or not a person has a vibrant spiritual life based on the fruit that they bear, whether or not they're exhibiting those fruits of the Spirit that Paul explains and draws our attention to in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul says in those verses that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Beloved, it's when we keep in step with the Spirit that others around us can see the genuineness of our faith. And so Jude, throughout this very short letter, is following the example of Christ and the other apostles. And he's telling the Christians to examine the fruit of these men who have infiltrated the church. And ultimately, he's showing you and me that these men and those who behave like them, those who today follow in their footsteps and do some of the same things that they do, these men do not bear good fruit and therefore are to be condemned as wolves in sheep's clothing. As Christ says, they will be burned in fire because that's all that they're good for. And so Jude, we understand, is not trying to lead some sort of Spanish Inquisition in the churches. No, the things that he's drawing the Christians' attention to are serious and alarming sins. The actions of these men are despicable and must be condemned. And the men who commit those acts need to be cast out of the covenant community, need to be disciplined. They need to be handed over to Satan, and they need to be ultimately given over to God for final judgment and condemnation. And we've seen already, even beginning in verse 5, that Jude outlines the actions of these men. We see that they complain against God like Israel did in the desert. These men try to usurp the, church's, the church leader's authority for themselves. These men live in wickedness and licentiousness like the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. These men blaspheme the glorious ones, Jude says. They blaspheme God's angelic and human servants, and they speak against what they don't understand. And like fools, they are destroyed by what they don't understand. 
But these aren't the only sins that these men have committed. There are still more things that Jude needs to tell you and me about the wickedness of these perverters of God's free grace. And so, in these few verses before us this evening, verses 11 through 13, we're going to look at um, Jude, or we're going to see Jude continuing to show what these men do that is so worthy of swift judgment from God and eternal punishment. Before he tells us more about their sins, Jude begins this section by pronouncing a woe upon them. He says, woe to them. Throughout the Bible, prophets and teachers of God's people call down woe, woes upon evildoers for various reasons. Generally, though, a woe is a cry for misery or misfortune, condemnation even, to come down upon that person. It's typically used by the prophets as a way to make clear the renunciation of certain people who sin so heinously that there is no hope for them to escape God's wrath. If we look in Matthew chapter 23, we see that Christ himself pronounces woe upon the Jewish leaders. We see this in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 13. There's these famous seven woes that Christ um, pronounces upon the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides. He goes on and says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he talks about all the various things that they're doing that make them hypocrites, that, that uh, condemn them. Their actions are what cause Christ to call down this woe upon them. He says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Christ is condemning the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy, for appearing as though they, uh, they are without blame and without sin. And yet, inwardly, they are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Well, just like Christ does in Matthew 23, here Jude is doing something similar. He's declaring God's woe to be upon these wicked men. And then, like Christ, he goes on to describe more reasons why they are to be condemned. These men... Jude says, are going to suffer the punishment of eternal fires of hell because firstly, he says in verse 11, they walked in the way of Cain. They walked in the way of Cain. To walk in the way of someone is a biblical metaphor that means to follow the example of that person. These men were then following the example, Jude says, of the first murderer, Cain. Now, by saying that they follow in the way of Cain, Jude is not saying that these men committed the same sin that Cain did. He's not saying that they're guilty of murder. Rather, he's saying that Cain is their example, and they're following after him in hating 
their brothers and sisters and not wanting what is best for them. Cain hated his brother Abel. And that hate was first manifested in his heart and then it came out in his actions as he killed his brother. These men likewise walk in the way of Cain by not caring for those they are supposed to love, by not caring for the fellow members of the bride of Christ. And so they are to be condemned for their hatred of their brothers and sisters, for following in the way of Cain. But Jude also gives this woe upon these men because they have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Once again, Jude is using Old Testament examples to prove that what these men do will receive God's just punishment. We see the example that Balaam sets in Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. And there we see that Balaam was a servant of the foreign king, Balak, who wanted Balaam to curse Israel and promised him financial reward for this service. But Balaam, through God's providential guidance, was unable to curse Israel. He was only able to bless Israel, much to Balak's frustration. So this is who Balaam was, but Balaam's error that Jude talks about is seen a little bit later in the book. In Numbers chapter 25, Moabite women in that chapter entice Israelite men away from worshiping God and get some of them to worship Baal instead. And the people are condemned for it, for this false worship of Baal. And then continuing in the book of Numbers, Numbers 31 verse 16, we learn that the Moabite women acted in this way. They, they did this. They, got these, they enticed these men to, um, to worship Baal on Balaam's advice. In Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, we read this. Behold, these, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So what does this mean? Well, when Jude tells the Christians that these certain men have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, he's highlighting two different aspects of their sin. He's saying that these men are seeking financial gain for their actions and that they're enticing others to participate in some form of sexual immorality, just like those women who were acting on Balaam's advice. Notice as well that Jude says these men are abandoning themselves to this behavior, to this error. They are giving themselves completely over to their desire for money and their desire for sexual gratification such that they can hardly focus on anything else. This is why their fruit is rotten. They can only think of themselves and their own fulfillment, their own satisfaction. So these men follow the way of Cain. They abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they also perished in Korah's rebellion. They perished in Korah's rebellion. This reference is one made to the Levite leader, whose name was Korah, 
who in Numbers 16 leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korah, in Numbers 16, attempts to usurp Moses' God-given authority, and he tries to bring many people along with him in his rebellion. But God, of course, is on Moses' side, and eventually the Lord destroys Korah and all his followers. And then we see this in Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 through 35. Korah and Moses are in this sort of standoff, And then the Lord intervenes. Verse 31 of number 16 says this, And as soon as Moses had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. What does Jude mean here by bringing Korah into this discussion? What's he trying to tell us? Well, clearly... He's saying that the men who pervert God's grace, who have infiltrated these churches, are rebelling against God's proper authority, as did Korah and those who followed him. But he's also saying that just as Korah was destroyed by God in a very public and awesome display of God's power, so too will these men be destroyed in the sight of all. Their actions going to bring condemnation down upon them. But this isn't all that Jude says about these men. Not only do they resemble and follow after all of these Old Testament sinners, like Cain and Balaam and Korah, but they also do much more. In verses 12 through 13, Jude is is starting to use natural imagery making metaphors from that great book of nature. And he talks about uh, how these men resemble things from the land, the air, the sea, and the sky, and how all of those condemn them as well. In verse 12, so verse 12 says this, These men are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude begins these verses by saying that these men are hidden reefs at your love feasts. By this, he means that these men are, are like large rocks or coral that are hidden under the surface of the water. These men will inevitably, like those large rocks, sink ships that come too close. These men, then, are not always blatantly troublesome. They're not always um, boisterous in their rebellion against God and against the leaders of the church. But these men are cause problems when the church comes together for their love feasts, which are most likely um, 
those times when they gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which included a full communal meal. These men, Judas saying then, disrupt the peace and fellowship of the church. They cause strife and even destruction by their actions. They, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts, not giving uh, proper solemn uh, uh, veneration to that love feast, that time when God's people are gathered together to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, but are disruptive and are um, upsetting the peace and purity of the church. But Jude also says that they, um, that they feast without fear. In the ESV, he says that they feast without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. This next phrase is a little confusing. Um, and, and the ESV, I think, do, doesn't place the, 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 the emphasis where it should. Um, what the Greek is actually saying, and the best translation or best understanding of this is that Jude is saying these men are shepherds who feed themselves without fear. It's not that they're feasting without fear. It's that they feed themselves without fear. Jude tells us then that these men who were, we understand, leaders of some kind in the church, they were in some sort of leadership in the church These men would only look out for their own interests. They would shepherd themselves fearlessly. That is, without a proper fear of God. Because they're neglecting their duties to shepherd the flock. They're shepherding themselves. And Jude is saying that they do this to their great shame. They're heaping upon themselves God's retribution for their brazen selfishness and neglect of their duties. They care only for their own interests and not for the interests of others. They are anti-Christ in this way. For Christ, we know, looked only to the interests of others. And that's the calling that you and I have on our lives as well. We must not look to our own interests, but as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we must have that mind of Christ in which we humble ourselves and serve others first in humility and following Jesus Christ as our great shepherd. Not only are these men shepherding themselves without fear, but they're also, Jude says, waterless clouds swept along by winds. These men, as we've said, are teachers in the church. They teach God's word, but their teaching, according to Jude, profits the people nothing. What good is a waterless cloud to a farmer who needs some rain? No good at all. Those clouds don't do, those waterless clouds don't do what they should. These men are unable to pour themselves out as a drink offering for their people because they're not filled up with anything but themselves. They're not filled up with the things of God such that they can pour that out upon God's people. No, they're, they're filled with themselves and their own interests. Not only that, but they're also carried along, swept along by winds. These men are those who, in the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, 
These, these men are those who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These men have no foundation. These men are easily swayed from the things of God. They're also, Jude says, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Remember, as we said, as we looked at Jesus' uh, teaching in Matthew chapter 7, God's people, especially the leaders in the church, are to be known by their fruit. Since this is the case, Jude calling these men fruitless trees is a harsh condemnation. These men are recognized as nothing but false teachers because they have no fruit to show for their efforts. Not only do they bear no fruit, they are unable to bear fruit because they are twice dead and uprooted. Jude here is, is, is holding nothing back in his condemnation of these men. He has nothing but scorn for those who would defile the name of Christ and who would actively harm his church. Again and again, Jude is calling down woe and condemnation upon these men for their actions. But he's still not done. Jude goes on in verse 13 to talk more about what these men do and, and what these men uh, prove themselves to be by their behavior. They are, he says, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam, casting up the foam of their own shame. The New Testament scholar Peter Davids says this about this phrase. He says, quote, Here in Jude, the teachers are wicked. They are wild waves of the sea. Restlessness being a characteristic of the wicked and the demonic, as James tells us in James chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 16. David's goes on, like a stormy sea, they spew out foam and debris. But at this point, Jude drops the metaphor. What they are foaming up is their own shame. That word uh, that Jude uses here that's translated casting up the foam carries along with it a sense of the, the dirty uh, foam that splashes onto the shore, the, the foamy waves that are full of the detritus of the sea floor. This really makes me think of, of the salt marshes in our area and the dirt and, and the filth that's found in the pluff mud there. This is what Jude means. These wicked men, these fruitless trees are in fact producing something from their works it's not fruit. It's not that ripe and pleasant fruit that we would expect teachers uh, of God's word to produce. No, they're in fact stirring up dirty, foamy waves. They're bringing nothing but their own shame. Their teaching produces nothing but shame for themselves. And this dirty, foamy water that isn't good for anything. Finally, Jude tells us that these perverters of God's grace are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude has already told us in verse 6 that the fallen angels will be kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. 
And here he says that these men will surely suffer that same fate. They will be kept in eternal darkness as well. They are wandering stars, aimless. They're concerned with nothing but their own desires, their own flesh. We are far too often, I think, like these men, are we not? Far too often we're more concerned with our own physical needs than our spiritual needs. When you go for a little while without eating, your body tells you you need to do something about it. But when you go for a little while without eating God's word, without studying it, your body may not give you that clear indicator that, that uh, an empty stomach uh, that an empty stomach is for, for hunger, but the fruit that you produce will surely be lacking if you go without studying God's word. If you neglect to come together with God's people and worship our great God, that fruit that we are always to be producing will start to look a little rotten, a little soft a little unripe and unpleasant. That's what these, these men are the worst examples of these things. But you and I are certainly somewhere on the continuum of, of them and Christ, are we not? You and I are tempted in these similar ways to pervert the grace of God into licentiousness, to live as we see fit rather than as God would have us. And this is what Jude is trying to show us here in these verses. These vivid descriptions of these men are meant in some ways to be a, a mirror that we hold up to our own lives. Jude is calling us here to examine ourselves. He's telling you, examine yourself. Keep an eye on your own behavior. Do you look more like these men than you do Christ? If so, then something must change. Are you conforming to the image of Christ or conforming to the patterns of this world? Are you studying God's word, bearing good fruit? Are you fellowshipping with the believers, attending worship, but also uh, gathering people around you to examine your life? Are you asking people, am I producing fruit? Are you seeing the, the, the fruit of, uh, of, of a vibrant faith in my life? We need our brothers and sisters to, to help us in this way, to point out uh, uh, the ways that we can improve and to encourage us when we are doing well, when we are doing what God has commanded to us, us to do. Unlike these men, you and I must, Jude tells us, submit to the leadership of the church. We must follow after those that God has put in authority over us, not like Korah trying to usurp their authority, but following them. And most importantly, we are to follow Christ, the good shepherd, who is far more concerned with feeding his sheep than feeding himself, unlike these men. Their condemnation is sure. 
And you and I must make sure that we're not following their patterns. The good news for us is that there is still time. There is still time for us to repent and believe in Christ and to follow him. Jude begins these verses by pronouncing a woe upon these men. But when you and I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, we see that Christ himself received God's woe of condemnation on your behalf and on mine. Christ took in his own body the condemnation that was reserved for evildoers, for sinners like you and me. The men that Jude writes against here were obstinately and and brazenly sinning against God and gave no indication that they were going to repent of their wickedness and embrace Christ by grace through faith. Christ did not bear the woe for these men. They bear it themselves, Jude says. Christ does bear that woe for all those who cry out to him in faith. The woe that Christ bore was a declaration of judgment upon sin. Christ, our Lord, though, never once sinned. He lived his entire life in complete and utter obedience to God's law, never once failing to do what God commands him to do. By his perfect obedience, Christ earned righteousness. Those mandates of the covenant of works are still in place today. Perfect obedience to God's law merits eternal life. But you and I are not able to do this because of our great and many sins. The glorious good news of the gospel, though, beloved, is that God has given us all that we need in order to be saved, and he's given it to us in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. This morning in our adult Sunday school class, we talked about the fact that God gives to his people what he requires of us. God requires from us obedience, perfect obedience, And he gives it to us by his free grace through Christ because Christ merited righteousness. By his obedience, he merited that righteousness that is imputed to us by grace through faith. God also requires atonement. And God gives us that spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And through Christ, who became our wrath bearer, The price that was due for your sin and for mine was paid in full on the cross. God also, we understand, requires holiness. He requires our sanctification. And he gives us his spirit who makes us holy, who makes us more and more like Christ, sanctifying us in the truth of God's word so that we grow in grace throughout our lives. In all aspects of salvation, God gives to us what he demands of us. And God takes upon himself the woe of condemnation and punishment that is the just reward for your sin and for mine. The wages of sin is death. Christ paid that death. He died so that you and I might live. Christ has done it all. Christ was condemned by God so that you would be reconciled with God. 
Christ became sin so that you would become the righteousness of God. Christ died that you might live. Trust in Christ and follow after him all the days of your life. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord, our God and our King. We thank you that Christ bore the condemnation that was due for our sin on the cross. We come to you pleading nothing but the blood of Christ, knowing that it's only in Christ that we have salvation, full pardon of our sins, and eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beloved, let us uh, stand together now and sing our hymn of response, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, number 460.